Welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now your host, Justin Spiro. Hello, I am Justin Spiro. Thank you for joining us tonight. Really good show and we are very excited to have you. Our guest will be Roger Stone in just a few moments, but first I want to talk a little bit about a key principle. And I think it's a key principle for anyone in any walk of life. And that is the concept of discernment. And this is more important now than ever. I think we're really in the loud man wins era. There's really no better example than Donald Trump as the president. Donald Trump trampled the GOP field during the primaries, just destroyed everybody, goes on to the general. He stuns Hillary Clinton in a, a historic election that will have books written about it probably for the next 200 years. And he was just the loudest guy. Donald Trump was bombastic. His arms were flailing all over the place every time he spoke. He drew a crowd. He knows how to entertain. That's his background largely. And it was effective. It is the loud man's win, you know, loud man wins era, and Donald Trump was the loudest guy and, and won. And really, you look at the NBA draft this year, was very interesting and very telling as well. And you can look at the Google trends for this information. Markel Fultz went first overall in the draft, right? LeVar Ball's son, Lonzo Ball, goes second overall to the Lakers. Huge story, right? Lonzo Ball, according to Google Trends at the day of the draft and throughout the night, was the number one searched NBA-related player. It was Lonzo Ball. Everyone was Googling Lonzo Ball. Who was number two? LeVar Ball. It wasn't Markel Fultz. It wasn't Josh Jackson. It wasn't John Calipari. It was the dad of a player. Why? Why was America searching LeVar Ball left and right on the night of the NBA draft? A player's dad? Because the guy's really loud. He is as loud as they come. You don't really get any louder than LeVar Ball, and people are drawn to it, okay? He was a magnet for attention, and he still is. Really, I don't think we've peaked with the LeVar Ball thing. I think there's more to come, and whatever you think of it, I think that's where it's going. And I don't think all this stuff in general is as bad as we make it out to be. I think we, we exaggerate just how big of a, a tragedy it is that everyone's talking about LeVar Ball. Now, it's not my cup of tea. I'm not into it. But we make it seem like it's a huge deal and ESPN is committing a grave sin by giving this guy this much play. And, and Fox Sports is just in the tank for LeVar Ball stories and it's just the worst. And look, you got to realize that the audience dictates this stuff. You, the listener, dictates it. Maybe not you personally, but you as a member of a collective audience dictates it. They are beholden to their ratings. And you can say that that's a criticism, but really... We're not dealing with, with war here. It's sports at the end of the day, and even with politics to a lesser extent, but I would still say it's entertainment for a lot of people. It is. Why were the Donald Trump ratings so high? Historical ratings for every debate. People were drawn to it from an entertainment perspective. So I don't think this stuff is really that bad. Everyone made a big deal. Tim Tebow this, Tim Tebow that. Oh, is Brett Favre coming back? Is Brett Favre going to play again? Is he going? Is he going to retire? And I'm just tired of this narrative and blah 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 blah. Everyone was just so upset with these repeated narratives, and I get it. it. It is annoying to talk about whether the Los Angeles Lakers will get the eighth seed for the 300th day in a row. I mean, that was a big thing a few years ago. Every day on ESPN, Bill Simmons was going nuts. I don't think this stuff is that bad as long as you use discernment. And you have to realize that people are going to be loud and there are going to be stories that grab headlines. But as long as you're able to sort of wade through the crap, I don't think this stuff is that bad. 
I think it's entertaining in a lot of ways. And if it's not, you can change the station. That's fine, too. But people act like it's this, this huge tragedy, and I just don't see it. And really, today, <laughs> we certainly have a loud man, uh, one of those aforementioned loud people coming on the show. Uh, Roger Stone, uh, veteran political advisor, good friend of Donald Trump, has lived a, a very interesting life. There's really not a whole lot good you can read on Roger Stone. He, he's pretty hated uh, by a large segment of the population, and really, that's what happens when your job is to be an attack dog for politicians. I mean, he's not really in the business of, of getting himself liked. He's not trying to get elected. He's trying to get the opponent for his employer not elected. And when you do sort of that counter research, that's where it lands. But look, at the end of the day, Roger Stone, like so many other people I find interesting, is a character. And I'm going to start right off the top here and tell you that I've gotten a lot of heat for having Roger on my show today. I've heard a lot of criticism for it. People are saying, why would you have this guy on? He's a scumbag. He's racist. Yada, yada. I mean, just people really despise this guy. And look, at the end of the day, he has really strong opinions. We're all adults. Use that tool of discernment. I think Roger's job, he is paid to do it. He's been paid to do it for, what, 40 years? His job is to be an attack dog and to take strong adversarial positions against certain people and certain concepts. So it is on you as an adult, just like it's on me and on anybody else, to listen to what Roger Stone has to say if you're so willing and wade through what you think is the bullshit. And I think that is something we're all capable of doing. I don't believe in the censorship or shut people down. I don't believe in it. I think Roger is an interesting guy. I disagree with a large segment of his platform. There's plenty of times that I think he's gone too far, said things that were inappropriate, said things that I would condemn. But I think he's an interesting guy and he has strong opinions. So, you know, when people say, why would you have fill in the blank on? That guy is terrible. That gal is terrible. I just like interesting people. And I think our guest coming up here has led a fascinating life. So that's why I'm having Roger Stone on. But again, this goes for anybody. Just use discernment with this stuff. I don't know everything that Roger's going to say. I'm sure about half of it is going to upset you. Maybe 85% will upset you. Maybe you want to pull your hair out. Maybe you want to never listen to this show again because you just couldn't believe I would have this monster on. And that's fine. That's your right as a listener. But I would only ask that you discern a little bit and listen to what Roger has to say. I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but I'm sure it'll be interesting with Roger. It always is. So we're going to take Roger on the line in just a second. And hold on. We will get Roger up for you right now. Roger Stone. We now welcome in Roger Stone, veteran political advisor and close friend of Donald Trump. Rogers featured in the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, a film covering his long career in politics. Roger, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Roger, I want to start with the news of the day. You're set to give this speech on the legalization of marijuana next month. It's been a big part of your advocacy lately. Now we have reports coming out that multiple parties are boycotting the event because of your participation, citing your ties with Donald Trump and your uh, supposed political beliefs that are offensive to so many. The event is scheduled for September 13th. I'm wondering, will you be there to give that speech in Los Angeles? I'm certainly planning to be there. This would be my second speech for the Cannabis Business Expo. I addressed their expo in New York in June. It was extremely well received. This is really not what it appears to be. It's a handful of agitators ginned up by Media Matters for America, recycling their same opposition research from the last election, and the number of people who are actually boycotting is uh, de minimis, to say the least. Uh, 
um, the media doesn't have any hard numbers, so they report it as significant, but I don't think it really is. The truth is, marijuana is an issue that unites people, and only a bipartisan approach, working with Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, libertarians and progressives, can we persuade the Trump administration not to reignite the failed ignominious disaster that was known as the war on drugs. The president very courageously pledged to support and protect the access of millions of Americans to, uh, to cannabis, to legal state legalized cannabis, and now I think it's vitally important that he be held to that pledge. You know, and the thing that I don't get about this whole issue is if you have shared ground with somebody, I don't understand why they would try to, to, to burn that. And you are an influential guy. You have a large following on Twitter. Whatever people may think of you, this seems so silly that you finally have this common ground on something that a lot of people find very important. I know your friend uh, Governor Ventura wrote a great book about it. And why, you know, why shoot you down when you're trying to help a cause that they seem to believe in? It, it just seems very petty to me, I'm sure. You probably well, I have think that they're trying to score partisan political points rather than look out for the future of legal cannabis. It's, it's putting a, a different political agenda ahead of the agenda that's the purpose of this conference. My co-chairman is John Morgan, the trial attorney from Orlando, Florida, who single-handedly provided the strategy and the money to uh, pass the constitutional amendment to make marijuana legal for medicinal purposes in the state of Florida. And he's been very supportive in this, in this faux controversy. You know, I, I want to move a little bit into to last week with the big news with Steve Bannon. Obviously, Donald Trump's chief strategist was fired. On his way out, he remarked, quote, that the presidency we fought for is over, end quote. I mean, what do you think of the president's decision to fire Steve Bannon, and was he a good hire really in the first place for that position? Well, <clears throat> I like Bannon. He is a friend of mine. I have defended him against false charges of being a racist or an anti-Semite. None of those things are true. But I also have to say, on balance, that I think he was somewhat ineffective in the Trump White House, either not being willing to spend his capital um, on important things, or, in some cases, in the case, for example, of the U.S. State Department and his advocacy of the appointment of Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State, Bannon was aware of the fact that Tillerson's greatest single advocate was Condoleezza Rice, the uber neocon who was one of the engineers of the Iraq war. Uh, and now Tillerson and Rice and a number of the Romney people have filled out the Trump State Department with globalists, members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and others in the key positions. And what we see is, uh, you know, is a interventionist foreign policy reasserting itself. We saw that in the president's speech in Afghanistan on Afghanistan last night, which I found troubling, frankly. Now, you've known Donald Trump for years. Obviously, you're close friends. You were really uh, pushing him to run years ago. He always seems to me, and to a lot of other people as well, to be performing for an audience. 
He's obviously had a very successful career as an entertainer when he wasn't being a real estate mogul and the president of the United States. I mean, I'm just curious, you know him. What is Donald Trump like as a guy when the cameras are off, you're just in an office with him or you're talking to him on the phone? How close is it to what we see on TV every day? I think he's the same person. I mean, he's, um, he's a lot of fun to be with. He uses a lot of self-deprecating humor. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, uh, you know, he's just kind of, he's, uh, he's fun to hang with, and he's pedestrian in his tastes. He likes a good cheeseburger, some fries. He's not looking for the, you know, White House chef to turn out pâté de foie gras. So, uh, you know, I think he's a regular guy, um, and uh, he's got a wicked sense of humor. Well, and, you know, you've worked on several presidential campaigns. You have such a long career in politics. And, you know, from the reputation, Trump is known as a very tough boss. I mean, you yourself quit his campaign in 2015 amid, amid, I think, critical differences about the direction of that campaign and where it was going. I mean, how does Trump compare to, like, let's say, Richard Nixon or anyone else you've worked for? Has has he been your most challenging boss that you've had? Well, he's just not a career politician, and he's very much his own man. There is no Karl Rove in Trump world. There is no, uh, you know, um, no David Axelrod. The idea that Steve Bannon was his chief strategist is somewhat ludicrous. I mean, I understand that he had the title, but he joined the campaign essentially for the last four weeks of the campaign, three and a half, and Trump's central platform and message, his appeal, had been chosen by Trump and refined and honed by Trump a good year ahead of that. Nothing really changed. Immigration and the wall, revitalizing our veterans' health care system, making our NATO partners pay their fair share, renegotiating the trade agreements that have sucked the jobs out of America, calling the Chinese out for their constant game playing, whether it's industrial espionage or currency manipulation. These themes were all decided on long before Stephen Bannon even decided that he was for Donald Trump. You know, I'm curious, uh, some of the stuff that I, I just frankly disagree with, with the trade deals and whatnot, I, I am more of a free market guy. I don't know what evidence there is that China's screwing us over. I think Donald Trump was effective in getting elected because he was essentially a very effective populist and a good communicator, and he he spoke to a lot of people that were disaffected. I'm curious, you know, I know you had a a lot of support for Gary Johnson in 2012. You identified largely as a libertarian. I believe you're still registered as libertarian or were at some I may be. You know, there's a U.S. Senate race in Florida in 2018, and Rick Scott, our governor, is talking about running for the Senate. I may just have to jump into that race. Oh, that'd be interesting. I, you've run so many other people's campaigns. It'd be interesting <laughs> to see you take a stab yourself. I'm just wondering how you sort of match that. I don't see them as compatible ideals, libertarian ideals, with this notion that we need to manipulate the market and have tariffs, which have never really worked historically. The smooth holly tariff was a disaster uh, during the Great Depression era. You know, I, I'm just curious how that, like, where is your ideology? Are you just being a good well, soldier it's, it's for the president? Simple. In all honesty, you don't have free trade now under the current agreements. They call it free trade, but it's, it's manipulated, just like, and overregulated. Um, tariffs um, are not the answer. 
And I actually don't think Trump would actually ever impose tariffs. I think he likes to enjoy using the threat of tariffs as a technique. The true answer to increasing uh, our trade uh, is to cut our corporate tax rate below that of Mexico and Japan and China. That would create a much greater boom uh, than any, you know, artificial tariff scheme. Now, look, I, I am a libertarian, but I've also been a friend of Donald Trump's uh, for 40 years. And um, I come from a conservative Republican, you know, past. Trump has some libertarian ideals. He is uh, definitely an opponent of the deep state and the adventurous foreign policy that we have had under both the Clintons and the Bushes, the so-called neocon two-party elite duopoly that's driven the country into the gutter. Additionally, Trump is a longtime skeptic of the war of drug, on drugs, saying in 1990 that they should be legalized, that you had to take the profit out of it, which shows that he really does understand the issue. You know, I'm curious a little bit about your career personally, as much as we've talked about Trump. I think you've led one of the more interesting lives of anyone that's passed through Washington, D.C., certainly in my lifetime. You know, you've basically made a career effectively attacking the opponents of your employer. I think you're, you're sort of a pit bull for whomever hires you, and you're a fighter and you're a grinder. You know, I know as well as anyone that politics ain't beanbag, as the phrase goes. There are times, though, I'm wondering, like, do you ever say something where you, you kind of cringe a little bit? Is it, is it a battle for you? Do you wrestle at all with the morality of what your job entails? Uh, no. Have I occasionally said things that I regretted? Who amongst us has not? No one was perfect other than Jesus. Uh, and, of course, everybody makes mistakes, big and small. But on balance, I think that I have represented my clients well because I have a realistic, strategic understanding of how to move votes, how to communicate in a mass-based way. Uh, and that's a, that's a changing dynamic with the advent of the Internet and the de-emphasis of the power of broadcast television and the growing uh, weakness of cable TV, it, it changes even more, meaning the technological advance that lets 50% or more of the voters get their information through their handheld computer device or their iPad or their PC really opens the door to a robust, vibrant, alternative media precisely because it breaks the mainstream media monopoly on the dissemination of political information. Back in the... It, it, Trump's election would have been unthinkable in the 1970s, or the 1980s, for that matter. Yeah, he was a social media... We had one monolithic media with one monolithic narrative. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, 1964, Barry Goldwater is a trigger-happy uh, neo-Nazi maniac. That was essentially the narrative of the mainstream media. Goldwater didn't have any alternative media to refute that or to, to, you know, to defend himself, and therefore the die was essentially cast. 
I think the the really interesting thing with this development now, and I think it really helped Donald Trump and hurt the Democrats in this recent election. I think the Democrats and the left in general have tended to cry wolf too much on a lot of these things. We were told that John McCain was an out of touch, you know, old crotchety guy. We and I know you're not the biggest John McCain fan these days, but we were told Mitt Romney in 2012 was this evil bully. They had to go back to his days at, at Cranbrook in high school of allegedly picking on, uh, I believe, a gay student there. So I think they went through this demonization process, and I know Bill Maher made the same point. It's a little bit like Crying Wolf, where 2008, McCain was the worst guy in the world. 2012, Mitt Romney's the worst guy in the world. And then Donald Trump comes along. He's the worst guy in the world. And I just think they've it's kind of lost its muster a little bit. Have you you've observed that at all in your experience? Yeah, it worked much better, better when there was nobody around to push back. And nobody else had a forum to push back with. Uh, with the advent of the internet, if you don't like the coverage on CBS, you can go someplace else, and people do. Uh, the the manifestation of that now is that the tech left giants like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they're trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, meaning censorship using either manipulation of the algorithms or any other dozen of computer techniques that essentially limit your reach and ability to communicate. Uh, You know, it's really mass-based censorship, but that's what the David Brocks of the world are advocating. You see, they can no longer win the political debate on the basis of ideas or issues, so they just want to silence you. I think I have no intention of being silent. Well, no, and that's not really your style. I know two of your your good friends and people you've aligned with. We already talked about Donald Trump. The other is Alex Jones. I asked you what Donald Trump was like. I mean, does Alex Jones like really believe everything he says? I know he's been accused of being a little bit of a showman himself. I mean, what is Alex Jones like when the camera's off for him? Um, he's also a regular guy and a lot of fun to be with. But I, I guess what I would say is that, and this came out of I think his child custody trial. It would be incorrect to say that he is uh, an actor or that he is uh, a guy playing a part. What he is is a true believer who then uses dramatization, parody, sarcasm to make his point, to be interesting. People don't tune in to watch or listen to people who aren't interesting, who aren't provocative, who have nothing interesting to say. And Alex Jones understands that. As Richard Nixon once told me, the only thing worse in politics than being wrong is being boring. Roger, you got to admit, though, the Sandy Hook thing was uh, not his finest hour. I mean, that was, I think, an embarrassment to InfoWars. I understand Alex Jones as an entertainer. He's fascinating. I I enjoy his rants, and I, I get it. I get your point. But I do think there is a line that he has crossed a few times, particularly with the Sandy Hook thing. I mean, would you at least grant me that much? I'm not an expert on Sandy Hook, and I've I've never commented on it, written on it. I don't have any... Well, what's there to be an expert about, really? I mean, a bunch of kids were shot up at a school by a a deranged kid. I mean, there's really not a whole lot of nuance to the story. It's just a terrible story and messed up things happen. I mean, that's... that's I urge you to go read some of the research done by Dr. James Fetzer seems to be some odd questions that I've seen on the periphery. Again, I'm not making any assertion. Uh, but just because you appear on InfoWars doesn't mean you agree with Alex Jones on anything any more than 
appearing on CNN means you agree with Wolf Blitzer about everything. No, and I, I agree with that. I was just curious where you stood on that specific issue. I wouldn't, you know, conflate everything Alex Jones says with what you say. Obviously, you, you differ on plenty of things, and I've seen you disagree often on that show. You know, and speaking of conspiracies, I thought, in my opinion, you've wrote, you've written one of the, the better JFK books. Uh, there's so many out there, dozens out there covering the assassination. It's called The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. I probably have 25 of these books on my shelf, and I'd put yours in the top three. Just great reporting, great interesting stories with the background. I'm curious, you know, you're friends with Donald Trump. I think the president has the power to, to release the, the hidden documents and the withheld files. Why don't you just call Donald Trump and say, uh, you know, who killed JFK? Is it really that simple? Well, first of all, the documents are already scheduled for release. So rather than order their release, all the president has to do is not object to their release. Uh, the Congress has set a schedule for the release of the balance of the JFK assassination-related documents. And as you know, the last time this happened in the 1980s, we learned all kinds of interesting things. For example, there's the memo from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to Lyndon Johnson telling him that the KGB has conducted their own extensive investigation into the Kennedy assassination and they've included that the key figure in the conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy is none other than Vice President Lyndon Johnson. We also learned from those documents that George Bush, George H.W. Bush, perjured himself when he said in his CIA director confirmation hearings that he had never worked for the Bureau because, lo and behold, a document again from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to the bureau chief in Dallas instructs him to brief George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency on the activities of Dallas-based anti-Castro Cubans. So we, we found out a lot of interesting things the last time there was a data dump. Uh, I have every be uh, reason to believe the president is not going to interfere with the scheduled release of the next tranche of documents, which I believe is the final tranche of documents. Do you think we'll get the answer? Do you think those documents hold the, the smoking gun, or do you think this is going to go into history as just a, a real mess, which it is right now? I think anybody with any intelligence or, or any um, real curiosity and an open mind uh, has already reached the conclusion that the Warren Commission conclusions are false, that Kennedy is shot from both the front and the back by multiple shooters, uh, but one of them is not Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, the, the evidence now is overwhelming in that regard. The, the Warren Commission conclusions are pretty bullet-ridden at this point. Not possible for Oswald to shoot Kennedy, hide the rifle, run down four flights of stairs where he's confronted by a Dallas police officer, but he is neither out of breath nor nonplussed. It just, it's, it's, I mean, I could give you 40 of those anomalies regarding the Kennedy assassination that point to a different narrative. Uh, the book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ, I tried to use eyewitness evidence, fingerprint evidence, and a lot of information on deep Texas politics to make a compelling case that LBJ is the person with motive, means, and opportunity. 
cui bono, as the Latins say, who benefited the most? Lyndon Johnson was facing criminal indictment in two major corruption scandals, the Bobby Baker scandal and the Billy Salesta scandal. He knows the time is running out, that Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, has begun telling people he's going to be dumped from the ticket and prosecuted, and therefore the clock is running out. You know, I that, think is not, that is not to say that the other, shall we say, usual suspects in this, the mob, the Central Intelligence Agency, Big Texas Oil, yes, they are all involved, without any question. They all have motive. But Lyndon Johnson has a unique relationship with each one of them. As a member of the Senate Appropriations, Defense Appropriations Committee, Johnson's the paymaster for the CIA all through the 50s. Um, he is being bribed by Carlos Marcello to um, protect the illegal gambling operations in San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston. And, of course, he's the water boy in Washington for the Texas oil industry. So, again, LBJ has a unique relationship with all of the other conspirators, but it's his need that is the most immediate. In other words, the Central Intelligence Agency is upset about both the Bay of Pigs fiasco and the Cuban Missile Crisis, but they don't have the immediacy that LBJ has, because he knows that Drew Pearson probably the most powerful syndicated columnist of the day, has written a story that's already in the can for November 23rd, accusing Johnson of taking bribes uh, from General Dynamics in a major defense appropriation scandal regarding the TXF missile. This is the beginning of the end for Lyndon Johnson. P.S., after John Kennedy is killed, the Pearson column is spiked. You know, the thing that it's, you bring in your book so many good background stories and the relationships and the machinations that were going on in Dallas and thereabouts. And really, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with Six Seconds in Dallas, Josiah Tink Thompson's book. It goes beyond just innuendo or what people said or eyewitnesses. I mean, it's basically demonstrable through science that it was a triangulation of fire, that it was at least three shooters, potentially four. This has yeah. essentially been proven, and it's incredible. Even though the polling typically tends to tilt towards people thinking it was a conspiracy, uh, it was a conspiracy of some kind. You still have what forty-ish percent of the people that are just hard, steadfast on that it was Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, shooting from. Well, the those system. are the vestiges of network TV repeating that over and over and over again. Tom Johnson, who was uh, a uh, Chairman Emeritus of CNN, worked in the Lyndon Johnson White House, has made it his life's mission to ensure that no alternative view is ever aired on CNN, despite the total lack of evidence and uh, the substantial evidence to the contrary uh, regarding Oswald being the only shooter and acting alone, uh, and so on. I guess the key thing about my book is that none of my findings are inconsistent with the broader, I guess I should say, conclusions that were reached by other great authors like Jim Douglas and others. Douglas is right. The CIA is up to their nose in the Kennedy assassination. I would just argue that he didn't look at the other conspirators. So there's no inconsistency there. 
uh, the House Committee on Assassinations in the 70s was staffed by people whose expertise was in organized crime. So, of course, they thought organized crime was the prime mover of Kennedy's assassination based on the fact that the Chicago mob had funded John Kennedy's campaign for president, and then Robert Kennedy double-crossed them by trying to prosecute Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante, two of the most prominent gangsters of the day. It was a double-cross. So uh, that's not incorrect, but when you go back and look at it, the CIA played rope-a-dope with the staff director of the House uh, Committee on Assassinations. They ended up turning over nothing and answering no questions. More than happy to point to the mob as the key progenitors of it. You know, I want to move a little bit uh, off 1963 back to present day. This whole Antifa versus alt-right thing, look, I, I know Donald Trump got a lot of crap for saying that both sides were bad, that it was on both sides. Roger, honestly, I lost two or three friends the last week for taking a similar position. I don't think the president handled this whole rollout of the condemnation perfectly. I thought he was a little bit slow to the trigger. But at the same time, when you have an act of violence committed against someone solely for their speech, it's just a First Amendment issue. And people say, oh, well, you know, it's a set of restrictions on Congress, not on citizens. That's correct. But you look at the condemnation of Donald Trump, it was because he said anything against these Antifa protesters that were violent in their own right. Now, just in general with the alt-right, this is a group that you've been lumped in with, that Alex Jones has been lumped in with, you know, friends of yours have been lumped in with. I'm curious where you stand on them, because my position is that they're, they're a terrible group, they're insidious, and I'm afraid of them and, and their role in the country going forward. You've been accused of being one of them. Where do you stand with the alt-right? I'm not sure when you refer to the alt-right, who exactly are you referring to? Well, I'm talking if about... We're talking about a handful of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and Klansmen, A, yes, it truly is a handful. They have no influence in this country. They're a band of nuts. I don't consider them conservatives or, or uh, movement conservatives. So alt-right becomes a broad-brushed tar those who are not racist or bigoted. William F. Buckley pulled the American right out of the fever swamps of anti-Semitism and bigotry. It was a new, enlightened conservative movement that was committed to human rights and civil rights and civil liberties. Um, that's the kind of conservative that I am in the Buckley-Goldwater mode. I have no time for white supremacists. That said, in all honesty, the Klan would have gone out of business 25 years ago if half of the people in it were not paid informants for the federal government. Uh, I think that the role, or I should say the prominence and existence of white supremacists in the country is greatly overrated. It's a small group of misfits, uh, and I don't identify with them, and I don't think the president does either. But to ignore violence by Antifa or by Black Lives Matter, that, in my view, is hypocritical. I actually disagree with you. The president denounced bigotry and racism immediately. That didn't satisfy his critics. They demanded that he name the white supremacists. So the next day, he did. 
But that still didn't satisfy them. Now they want to know what took him so long. I think he reached his boiling point, and he told an absolute truth. No, it wasn't a meltdown. No, it wasn't a mistake. Absolutely accurate, and the majority of Americans agree with him. The poll numbers, by the way, have held up in an extraordinary way, meaning those who voted for Trump overwhelmingly say they would do it again, whereas three out of ten Hillary voters now say they're not sure they would make the same mistake. And I think there is a, a broadening of trying to, and I agree with you on this, everyone that is, is on the right is suddenly in the alt-right. And I think even people out there identify as alt-right and they don't realize the origins of it, that it has a very specific uh, ideology, that it's based largely in a sort of a fundamental concept of white supremacy and that our country in America here was built by these white people and that it should be their nation and they should have their own nation. I think people conflate that with, I like memes with Pepe the Frog and I think Milo Yiannopoulos is funny, so I'm an alt-writer or I, you know, I, I like to make fun of Paul Ryan, so I'm an alt-writer now. So I, I do think there's this broadening of the term and really it does such a disservice not even so much to the people targeted, but I think it, it helps the alt-right because it legitimizes them and it makes them seem more influential than they actually are. I agree with you. I think the people that actually fit into the alt-right box, into what the alt-right actually means, is a pretty small group. Whereas I think Antifa is growing and I think they have a, a larger contingency. And in that regard, I could argue they are more dangerous. Now, I don't think their ideology is worse. I don't think you can get a lot worse than a neo-Nazi. I, I think that's about as low as it can get. I think there are some well-intentioned members of Antifa, but I think the Antifa movement, just in terms of the the idea that you can punch someone because you don't like what they say, I think that is a bigger risk going forward for the country. That's just my well, opinion. Well, uh, because it, it, it invites a counter-reaction. If you're going around punching people, sooner or later someone's going to shoot you or punch you back. Yes. You, you see where this leads. Uh, and th therein lies the danger. But <clears throat> you can go on Twitter today and see this video of a young black guy punching out this old white lady. Uh, that's enough to make anybody's blood boil. It is a concern going forward, and uh, th people seem to be, okay, well, you can punch a Nazi. Nazis are evil. The problem is tomorrow someone may call you a Nazi or me a Nazi. Well, okay. let's be clear. Jason Kessler, the chief white supremacist organizer of the Charlottesville event, why was he working for Barack Obama a year and a half ago? Why was he an Occupy demonstrator? He's a ringer. Let's be realistic. Soros was paying for these things, uh, the agitation of violence and the fake demonstrations during the campaign. WikiLeaks established that without dispute. Why would he not do it now? So there's evidence of George Soros, because that's something I hear a lot like from you and Alex Jones and other people on the, on the you know, f farther right, I would say. I mean, is there any evidence actually that George Soros is paying people to protest, paying people to cause problems at rallies? I just, yeah, I, I think I, that, I that's fairly it. documented because the, the organizations, he is known and reported as a donor to a number of the organizations that were utilized. And in the case of Charlottesville, we found the Craigslist ad hiring actors for a big outside drama. Who placed that ad? So uh, the thing smells more and more like agate prop and as a false provocation. And just like in the campaign, you go out and you foment violence, then you blame that violence on Donald Trump. That's exactly what happened here. Well, I know, Roger, you've got to get going soon. I do want to ask you one last question, though. Just uh, This is sort of a pet question for me, but... 
U.S. sources all over the place. These, this whole Bill O'Reilly thing at Fox News, I've been listening to his podcast off and on. I, I do find it entertaining. I think he's a pretty sharp guy in a lot of ways. But I, he is claiming adamantly that he was railroaded by Fox News, that there are false accusations similar to the Soros Group Media Matters coming after him just because they didn't like him. And what have you heard about this? Do you think he is guilty of half of what he's accused of? Is he completely framed, as he alleges? Where do you stand on that? You know, unfortunately, I'm just not in a position to pass judgment on Bill O'Reilly. Candidly, he's not my cup of tea. Uh, his books on the Kennedy assassination are superb. Perhaps it's time for him to read them because he didn't write them. Uh, he can't defend them because he actually doesn't really know what's in them. Um, yet, at the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, his was the largest selling book. Mine was actually second, which I'm fairly proud of because I didn't have a cable news network to sell my book on. So I, I cannot speak to the question. Uh, I do think Roger Ailes was railroaded, but I know more about that case because Ailes was a friend of mine of, you know, 50 years. Uh, and uh, I just don't find the claims of Megyn Kelly credible. In fact, she changed her testimony after getting an $11 million book contract from the Murdoch Sons. Uh, and I find that strangely suspicious. My, my concern is when you have, you know, accuser after accuser coming forward, it becomes a little bit like the Cosby case, maybe not in sheer volume, but in that there is a volume of accusers from a variety of different backgrounds. It just seems like I'm all for a good conspiracy, but seems a little unlikely. I don't. I haven't read as much about, you know, that situation as Bill O'Reilly's, but I do, I do think it's interesting you attacked him for not writing his books. It's pretty obvious that that, that Martin Dugard guy writes every single book, and Bill O'Reilly's just the front for it. Slaps his name on it, makes a fortune. Yeah, you're the, it's like you're the only one that talks about this, Roger. You can tell just by reading the books that that's the case. I don't think Bill O'Reilly's well, cranking this, out three this books is, a year. This is know. really simple. Bill, if you're listening, debate me on the question of who killed Kennedy. Interestingly, in the book, Dugard makes an extraordinary case that Lyndon Johnson is an unhinged lunatic, desperate for power, and trying to move away from the corruption um, pursuit investigations of him. And then he reaches the, the conclusion, however, he had nothing to do with it. It's antithetical to the evidence. He's go, he goes about 75% of the way there, and then when it yes. comes to pull the trigger, he just folds in like everybody else. I mean, that's right, basically what happened. Because happens. he knew that he would have trouble in the mainstream media with that position, that he would be shunned with the, in certain places with that position. The other one that's interesting to me has always been, um, uh, well, uh, I'm going to get far afield here if I, if I don't stop, but... You've had uh, you've had a number like Geraldo Rivera is a perfect example. He does some of the best early reporting on the Kennedy assassination, poking holes in the Warren Commission conclusions. He even it, it interviews Madeline Brown, who is Lyndon Johnson's mistress, and who claims in a in a filmed interview with Geraldo that the night before. The Kennedy assassination. She spent the night in a hotel with the vice president, who told her, "After tomorrow, I won't have to worry about those Kennedy sons of bitches anymore." When I asked Geraldo about that five years ago, he says to me, "Who's Madeline Brown?" Unbelievable. Yes, I mean, how do you, how how are you that blind on that? It just doesn't make any sense. 
Well, I think it was a condition of going to work at Fox. It's, it's just, he had to abandon whatever he thought about the Kennedy assassination. Oh, and there's so much there. But, Roger, I know you got to get going. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure talking to you. A couple tough questions. Appreciate you fielding them. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, I wish you luck. I hope that you do make it to the stage out there in Los Angeles next month. Uh, it's certainly a cause I believe in as well. So uh, any soldier that wants to fight that war, uh, I'll stand next to them. And uh, I'm glad you're doing that. We wish you well, and uh, thank you again for joining us. Great. Many thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Wow, so that was Roger Stone. Very interesting interview. Uh, kind of all over the place. We tried to hit on a lot of topics. He was a little bit limited with the time. Look, the, I'll come around and say it. I mean, the, the Sandy Hook stuff, it's just crazy. I mean, that stuff, it, it's nuts. I hate that stuff. And it, it's unfortunate that Roger's towing the line there and, and citing Joseph Metzger, who I think is a kook and thinks everything's a conspiracy. But uh, Roger's an interesting guy. I mean, plenty there that I could take issue with, but he does have a really interesting perspective. And, you know, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, really one of the rare times that we'll deviate from a, a Detroit or Michigan sports topic, but I thought it was worth it. Had an opportunity to get Roger on, and I hope you enjoyed it. Now to be a little bit more in our Spiro Avenue lane, if you'll you know pardon the pun, I want to cover... Our winners and losers, Jed, let's start with the winners. I didn't get a chance to see him play. I was too busy winning. I won. Yeah, I won. I won. Ah, all the years I've waited for this, years. I've been coming up here. I've never won, never won once, and now I won. Who is today's winner? Well, it's sort of a collective winner today, just like the loser will be, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, today's winner, it is not the typical winner where we have somebody that we mention and we say, hey, they did a great job with this story or this report or this interview. This is a, a collective winner, okay? And this has been a topic. We had Craig Custance of The Athletic in here. It's something we've talked about again and again. The big winner of the day and really the week and maybe even the month, probably not the year, is The Athletic. And why? The Athletic hired Ken Rosenthal. Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports previously, of MLB Network, a guy with incredible reporting chops, a very gifted writer, a really sharp guy. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the fact that he blocked me on Twitter for asking him a question, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Ken Rosenthal is a great get for The Athletic, and this is a, a power move by them to hire someone with his uh, knowledge and his background with sourcing He's a great catch for them. And this is a, a, an organization, The Athletic, not just on the Detroit level but nationally, that is making one power move after another. And you look at the top uh, sort of level where you have Katie Strain, Craig Custance locally, Ken Rosenthal, uh, their you know, college football writer, um, is it Stuart Mandel or Ivan Mandel, whatever that guy is. He's got a really good uh, reputation too. I don't really read his stuff. But when you look at who – they are bringing in, it really speaks volumes. Now, look, Ken Rosenthal is not a guy who's going to say, the Athletic offered me $10 more than Fox Sports ever would or MLB Network ever would, so I'm going to go. Okay, when there's a good lesson in life, and, and this is something I try to follow. If you see really intelligent people, smart, hardworking people going a certain way, following a certain market in the economy or investing in a particular company. If you see smart people doing that stuff, they might be onto something. Okay? 
Ken Rosenthal is a really well-established, entrenched journalist with great chops, okay? For Ken Rosenthal to hitch his wagon, hitch a ride on the athletic train, tells you a lot about what Ken Rosenthal thinks. Ken Rosenthal is not going to put his career in the hands of something that he doesn't believe in. And I would say the same thing about Craig Custance and Katie Strang to a lesser degree. Both willingly left ESPN of their own volition. They were not part of the massive layoffs there. So when you see smart people doing these things, it has to make you wonder, maybe the athletic is onto something. Maybe I'm crazy. I've been a believer in what they've done. I'm willing to pay a few bucks a month to have better reporting. Everyone's been really hyper-focused. The critics of it have been hyper-focused on the bottom rung of the athletic and the people that are basically on there writing on there as a by-trial basis, and they're judging the athletic based on that. I look at what they have at the top and really even in the middle class there, but look at who they're hiring. Ken Rosenthal, K-String, Craig Custance, really smart people. They're giving Prashanth Iyer a voice there as well. There are intelligent people with great points of view that are being part of this, and I I think it tells you a lot. I I just do. I don't don't think you can continue to write this off as so many have. And look, it doesn't mean, oh, you have to go subscribe. It may not be your bag, and that's fine too. But I think you see enough smart people going that route. Maybe they know a little bit more than you or I do about the future of this industry. Maybe this is where it's going. I I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know, but I am going to pretend to know the fact that when you have a lot of smart people going away, any particular way, it is at the very least compelling. And that brings us to our losers, who are a collective loser, much like the winners today. Let's do our losers. Loser! You're a loser! Are you feeling sorry for yourself? Well, you should be, because you are dirt! You make me sick, you big baby! Well, this is another collective grouping here. And this is something I talked about on Ryan Schuling's show on Lansing this Monday. The Detroit Red Wings reporters in this town are particularly abysmal. And I'm sure they're very nice people. I don't have anything personally against these people. But it's just, it's one disaster after another. And this is something I was just driven crazy by earlier in the week. Story comes out Monday. Detroit Red Wings captain Henrik Zetterberg Uh, announces, I guess, in this Swedish interview that he's going to play out two more years on his contract and then retire. And this was just on the front page of the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press. Breaking news. Henrik Zetterberg only has two years left to play. Guess who knew this five years ago? Anyone with a brain. Henrik Zetterberg signed this contract, this front-loaded contract, in 2012. It was a long-term extension heavily front-loaded, where the last two years of the deal that he's retiring from essentially announced it already, he's getting paid $1 million a year, even though his average salary is something like six or six and a half. So I could have told you back in 2012, everybody pretty much knew that Henrik Zetterberg was never going to play those last two years. Henrik Zetterberg is making $7 million this upcoming season. He's going to go from that to making $1 million in the last two years of his career? Not going to do it. Henrik Zetterberg's not going to play for a million dollars for two years. It's insanity. But this was totally ignored by the media. The media acted like this was breaking news. This was some huge story. Then they completely botched the salary cap implications. What was Helene St. James doing in her article that she's edited like 17 times since it went to print? She had no clue about the cap recapture penalties, the implications for the Detroit Red Wings going forward. It's a bad situation. So 
this is that it's not just her. It was a collective failure. Anybody that writes on this team professionally botched it. I mean, really, you know, Greg Krupa was talking about it. No one talked about the fact that we all saw this coming. Anyone that follows this team at all has any common sense would know that Henrik Zetterberg was never going to play out the full contract. It was obvious. So I, I've known for years that he had two left if he didn't retire prematurely. This was obviously going to happen. No one talked about it. And when it was finally addressed in some form, although not the proper one, they totally ignored the fact that this is a, a, a yet again another catastrophic thing for the Red Wings. I don't think Henrik Zetterberg is that good. I don't think it's a big deal like on the ice, but just the salary cap implications. Ken Holland has mismanaged this thing terribly. The media is just not telling you this stuff. And the Red Wings, I think, uh, they're just the worst in terms of the coverage. I don't think it gets any worse. You know, I, I have my frustrations with the Tigers, but we have Tony Paul. Tony Paul is sort of like the, the saving grace there. The Detroit Lions beat writers top down very strong. I mean, they're the only one that are, as a group collectively are strong. I think the Pistons are weak, but they do have Rod Beard at the Detroit News. We disagree plenty, but at least we have a, a, a critic of the organization when it's necessary. The Red Wings, it's like it's this total free pass. That's why I couldn't just pick one of them. I'm looking at this stupid Henrik Zetterberg story that no one is talking about either the implications of what he's doing or the fact that anybody with two brain cells saw this coming the second it was signed in 2012. I was just starting law school and I knew this stuff was happening. That was like a thousand years ago. My daughter was just an idea at that point. So it's just the media... They, their job is to communicate truth to the audience. That's that's really it. I mean, they're not keeping a large corporation in check the way you know you're supposed to keep Exxon Mobil in check. This is sports. It's a little bit less important. We don't have to be that self-important about it. But just do the basic function of your job. These Red Wings writers. I can't just name one of them. You know, it's Group Elliot and whoever you want. It is a collective failure. of These people. I don't know what to do. I, I, it's like you can't get any coverage from these people. And really, you got to go read Prashanth Iyer, who I think is a little bit, uh, a little bit dry. But at least he'll point these things out to you and inform you. So, if you're looking for any good Red Wings coverage, tune out the media, the, the mainstream media anyway. Follow Prashanth Iyer on Twitter. Read his articles at the Athletic. I think Craig Custance has done a pretty nice job with his Red Wings related articles at the Athletic. You can't trust the news or free press. It's just been one disaster after another. They totally. You have the captain, uh, a multi Stanley Cup. You know, captain, who's who's retiring. It's his big story, and they they couldn't get. There's two f- major components of it. They couldn't get either one right. They didn't get the fact that this was inevitable, right? They didn't get the fact that this is a, a catastrophic salary cap implication for the Red Wings, right? I mean, you go over two on a huge story. I, I just don't get it. I mean, it's just so frustrating, and I I can't follow it. You know, if it wasn't plastered in my face as the breaking news of something I knew five years ago, I would have just avoided it completely. I recommend you avoid it too. I, it's just there's no point in even trying with these people. The coverage is so bad. And until it gets better, don't consume it. So that was it for the Spiro Avenue podcast. We had to finish with a little media criticism after that political interview with Roger Stone. Uh, thank you again to Roger Stone for joining us. I, uh, I've been teasing this Charles Rogers uh, episode for like two weeks now, and I got to tell you, that guy is really hard to pin down. I mean, I've, I've spoken to him. Uh, we agreed to do it. 
he seems gung ho about it, and then the the date is never right or the time's not right. It's been it's been a pain in the butt. So I, I'm sorry, we are trying to get that for you, and I'm really interested in having that conversation. I think he's got a lot to say. He's not going to hold anything back. We're going to get him eventually, unless God forbid he gets hit by a bus sometime between now and when that interview takes place. I want to say thank you uh, to Jed Schilling, who is our wonderful producer, made it through our first 10 episodes. Very critical in getting the show off the ground. This is his last show, at least for now. Uh, He is going back to school at the University of Toledo, so he will be out of the state. Uh, Jed, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's it's been uh, a real thrill to have you. He's given me the thumbs up. And uh, we hope to have you back whenever you're back in town. Uh, We will have a new producer coming in next week for our next episode, whenever that may be. Uh, But uh, big thank you to Jed. He he really rescued us today. Oh, my God, we did not even come within a minute. Uh, We almost blew this whole thing with Roger Stone. Our equipment was acting up. We were calling the engineer. Jed fixed it with, like, 72 seconds to spare. I I was this close to having to cancel a stone. So uh, I don't know if it was... George Soros trying to shut down the interview or Media Matters, but uh, someone got in our system and and Jed out-hacked the Soros hackers. So thank you very much to Jed and thank you for everything you've done. This has been episode 10 of the Spiro Avenue podcast. Hopefully next week, Charles Rogers. If not, we will have somebody very good for you to be sure. Thank you as always for listening and we hope you subscribe to us, Spiro Avenue on iTunes. Have a good week, people.